Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Evelini House says she founded Community Rebuilds to address an affordable housing need in her rural community, in this case Moab, with the larger goal of shifting the existing construction paradigm to have a lighter impact. It began as a simple idea to replace old dilapidated housing like single-wide trailers built prior to 1976 with homes that cost less to build and less to heat and cool for working families. And they were looking to build with sustainable materials that were dirt cheap, literally to build affordable, energy-efficient homes out of straw, sand, clay, and wood. We're continuing our series of programs on housing with a look at uh, community rebuilds and straw bale housing. Today, we're going to be talking with Emily Niehaus, founder and executive director of Community Rebuilds. We'll also be talking with Rosalind Brain, who's with Utah State University Extension and with Dan McCann, who is with Ecologic in Moab. At the end of the program today, we'll check back in with Macy Miller in her tiny house in Boise, 196 square feet of it. And uh, harken back in an update on our program on tiny housing. We bring in now Emily Niehaus, who's founder and executive director of Community Rebuilds. Uh, pleasure to welcome you to the program. Thanks. We also bring back to the program Rosalind Brain, who's Assistant Professor and Sustainable Communities Extension Specialist uh, with Utah State University in the Department of uh, College of oh, well, the College of Natural Resources. Rosalind Brain, pleasure to welcome you back to the program. Thanks. Hi, thanks, Tom. Good morning. Good morning. And Dan McCann joins us. Uh, he works for Ecologic in Moab. And uh, Dan and Rosalind, understand you're uh, you're building a, a straw bell home. That's correct, yep. Great. Uh, tell me what Ecologic is. What do you do? Um, well, Ecologic is a company um, that was founded by Eric Plord and Kara, his wife. And uh, basically, we're building um, super tight, energy-efficient homes, um, whether it's a, a standard, um, more conventional framing, straw bale, or um, also panel houses. I'll follow up with that. I want to start with uh, Emily Niehaus. Uh, so I read a, a bit of your um, a piece that uh, you can find on the, the White House's site, uh, whitehouse.gov. Um, and uh, I understand you got an, got an award for this for your program, Community Rebuilds, from, from the White House. Uh, so what problems were you trying to address with this program? So um, typically jobs pay a little bit less in a tourism-based economy, and um, the cost of housing is a little bit more. And so that, um, that gap really, um, uh, really can create, um, you know, uh, a disparity between, you know, the homes that we have and the homes that are affordable to our community. And so um, then we have this, um, this additional problem in Moab where, um, back um, when in the old uri uh, uranium mining days, um, housing was needed quickly. And so um, the community brought in a lot of trailers, a lot of single-wide trailers, to solve for affordable, affordable housing over 30 years ago. And 30 years later, that temporary quick-fix housing is still in our community today and is considered um, the only affordable housing left um, in Moab. And so... Um, it, it was kind of a, um, a problem with two parts. One, dilapidated housing stock um, with um, high utility payments for families. And then, and then two, um, this, um, the, of the housing stock that was available, um, not really affordable or accessible to a lot of people working here. And 
I saw this problem from my um, my desk when I was a loan officer at a credit union. And so I thought, well, surely there's a there's a way to solve for it. Um, surely there's um, there's a, a creative way to go about it. I was doing a play with a natural builder at the time, Donnie Kissmeyer, and he started telling me about how he builds homes with dirt <laughs> and, um, and how there's this like house called a straw bale home um, and straw is an agricultural byproduct and so a waste product. And so I thought, well, if there's an agricultural waste product and it's just dirt, these homes must cost so much less than a conventional home to be built. And he said, well, yeah, but there aren't a lot of people that know how to build it, um, build a straw bale home, and um, and uh, um, they, they take a lot of labor. And so I thought, well, if it takes a lot of people and people don't know how to build it, maybe through an education program we can build a bunch of these homes um, as affordable housing for the community while also building builders. Um, and forward this type of construction that could be a potential solution, especially in rural communities for affordable housing. And so that's, um, that was the problem that we um, looked to address with this program, Community Rebuild. And now what has happened is that we're now seeing all of these unintended consequences, these beautiful unintended consequences of no utility payments. So affordability, long after the key goes in the door, these homes... Um, are just so um, cheap, <laughs> so inexpensive to heat and cool. Um, we're also seeing women getting into building um, uh, construction because um, our job site, we open up to student interns, anybody that wants to build these homes. So um, solving one problem, but seeing a lot of really beautiful um, results. Uh, I want to just back up one thing you said in passing, just follow up on it. You you met this gentleman doing a play together, like a stage play? <laughs> yeah, <It's>... <laughs> Moab Community Theater is a really cool uh, network. Of, yeah, it sounds um, cool. Yeah, so after rehearsals, we were doing this play, Fuddy Mirrors, back in, I think it was 2003. Um, so after play rehearsals each night, I would say, so how do you how do you do a wall system with straw? So how, what kind of roofing do you do? Well, what, what's your foundation look like? And so, um, so I had these informal interviews with a natural builder, um, and it really just made a lot of sense to me, mm-hmm. this type of construction. Yeah, I got to love, uh, I think a lot of that goes on in Utah communities. It's, uh, you know, and Moab, Moab being one of those where you network uh, doing other things. I want to turn to, mm-hmm. to uh, Dan McCann next. Uh, I'm curious about this, how, uh, you know, you you think about building a house out of what straw and dirt and you know <laughs> how, how does this happen explain to me how how a, such a house goes together um well it's quite funny um i come from a more conventional background and um when i first came to moab and started with community rebuild um learning the straw bale system i was blown away um <laughs> Uh, certain things you do um, in straw bale um, are rather unconventional and very, um, very free and a lot of room for lots of creativity. And so um, basically it starts out, you do uh, um, your standard foundation, um, however you want to do it, uh, whether it's a monolithic slab or a grade beam, um, footers. Um, and then basically, um, it's a post and beam structure, 
um, that is like a timber frame or not timber frame. It kind of depends on how you, you know, what materials you decide to frame it with. And you do your skeleton, you frame your um, exterior walls, and you get your roof on, you order trusses, um, or frame your roof how you choose to, and then you roof it. And then after that's done, you come in and you basically stack straw in between the wall members, in between the beams, um, and uh, fill it fill it all the way up um, with bales of straw. And you can stack the straw flat um, or on edge. Um, and there's lots of advantages to um, this method of building because you're using far less um, wood in your walls, basically. Um, wow, it's, then, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. You're you're blowing um, you're blowing my mind here. And I'm I'm looking <laughs> at I'm looking at um you know a picture, uh, uh-huh. a photograph, there, you know, farmer unloading these these bales. So when you say straw, is this this like hay bales? It's like the bales that I hauled sometimes in the summertime? Well, um so so hay is the seed. Uh-huh. Um, and they cut that off the top, and that's what you feed to a horse okay. or, you know, your cattle. And then the straw is the stalk. It's the the long, strong uh, tensile stalk that, you know, everything grows on. Okay. Um, and then that's baled separately from the hay. So it's basically the part, these bales. It's not full of seeds and okay. all, the, all that stuff. It's basically these bales, and that that's what your walls are made of. Isn't this a fire hazard? Um, no, not really. It, um, the only time it's really a fire hazard is when you're uh, filling um, and you're cutting the bales down um, to fit to size in your walls um, because there's a lot of loose straw. But a bale, a straw bale on its own, when it's um, densely packed, um, there's very little oxygen. And it's actually very hard to burn a bale. Um, it needs a very consistent um, source of flame. So... When there's a lot of loose straw, it can be dangerous and a fire hazard. But um, when it's dense in the bale and then the walls are covered up, there's very little chance of um, a bale catching fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, let me turn to Rosalind Brain. Uh, this, of course, you're a sustainable uh, communities extension specialist. Uh, this checks a lot of boxes. You're, you're, you're doing sustainable. This is energy efficient. Affordable housing? Right, Sounds like yeah. a great idea. So, yeah, I first met Emily. I came down to Moab uh, to take a permaculture workshop with Community Rebuilds that uh, my department had encouraged me to take and um, learned more about the program and straw bale building it does. It meets a lot of what I'm trying to advocate with my sustainability program. As Emily will say, um, straw is an agricultural byproduct and um, and this gives us an opportunity to use that product to um, to create something beautiful. And it's been really fun to go through this process and to see the transition of Dan being a growing up in conventional building and then now um, being so involved in straw bale building. And he um, he went through the process with community rebuilds first as an intern, and then the next semester he was a site supervisor. So um, helping and overseeing the intern tasks the next semester. And then the semester after that, we um, started to jump into our own building process. And so it's been a really neat progression. I'm sure it's been great for Community Rebuilds to watch as well, just to see that transition occur. And 
it is really fun to to mix um, mud and and even when we were pouring our floor, you know, you're taking wheelbarrows full of mud into your house, and that just seems so wrong, but it felt so great to do that and fill the floor with mud. And mm. um, and it looks so beautiful. It's been funny talking to um, people who I know who build, even my, my own dad, who um, grew up building and um, make jokes about our, our house blowing down, et cetera, with the straw bale. But it's um, really an amazingly... Um, tight home, like Dan was saying, but also it's, um, you know, the extent of insulation those bales provide is incredible. It's, um, you know, I'm excited to see how this works in the winter. We've got radiant heat going um, in our house. Um, well, it's not on yet, but it will be going this winter. And then to see how, how well that home just heats itself by these very thick insulative walls. So you're really putting your principles, uh, you know, where you live. Um, do, do you, were there any worries going on? You had mud floor and straw bale walls, uh, you know, that your house would smell like wood and or like straw and, and mud and, it, you know, kind of be untenable that way? Um, I, I think that it, it looks absolutely beautiful. It smells great. I mean, with smell, you've got to think about what you're comparing it to. If you think about a conventional build and conventional paints, et cetera, we're using clay paints, and um, you know the smell of that compared to uh, paint from the, your standard store is. I would much rather go with a natural earthy smell than um, than a chemical smell in my home. And mm-hmm. also for safety, if we have kids in our house and you know they're they're interacting with the floor and that we don't ever have to worry about chemicals that we've put in there that um, they're going to be interacting with. It'll instead be. Uh, really nice natural environment and the other beauty of it looking nice as well. Let's take a break when we come back more on sustainable housing. We're doing a series of shows on on housing. We did a show on uh, tiny housing. Uh, We talked about uh, getting off the grid. Uh, Today we're talking about a sustainable housing program. Uh, It's called Community Rebuilds. We have the executive director of that program, Emily Niehaus. This is in Moab got Rosalind Brain with us, who is Sustainable Communities Extension Specialist and Assistant Professor in the uh, College of Natural Resources at Utah State University. She's based in Moab. And Dan McCann, who works for Ecologic in Moab, and uh, he's uh, building a straw bale uh, house there in Moab. If you have questions or comments, you can join us here. And I'd love to know about your sustainable housing project. Are you putting solar panels on the roof? Are you building a straw bale uh, home? Uh, what is your story? I'd love to hear it. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. Or you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com. Upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley Intermountain Healthcare. Hosting the Budge Clinic Building Expansion Grand Opening on Saturday, November 7th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. 1350 North, 500 East in Logan. This is Science by the Slice. When discussing how one species evolved into two or more distinct species, scientists often surmise the uplift of mountains, which split populations of plants and animals, was a contributing factor. Not so fast, says USU entomologist James Spitz. You might expect this of desert species, where the terrain is typically isolated by mountain ranges. But for some organisms, he says, evidence points to glaciations that occurred during the Ice Age. 
A foremost scholar of wasps known as velvet ants, Pitts compared molecular data from modern-day ants with data collected from fossils and says the findings support the idea that relatively recent glacial action rather than ancient mountain formation led to new species. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Talking about sustainable housing, we're continuing our series on housing. We've talked about tiny houses, and in fact, coming up in the last segment today, we're going to be checking back in with Macy Miller and her tiny house in Boise, Idaho, 196 square foot. She recently did a tiny addition, and she lives there with her husband, their daughter, and their Great Dane. That's one housing model. We're talking about the Community Rebuilds Program in Moab. We're talking with the founder and executive director, Emily Niehaus. We're talking with Dan McCann, who works for Ecologic in Moab. He's building a straw bale home. And Rosalind Brain, who is assistant professor in College of Natural Resources at Utah State University and Sustainable Communities Extension Specialist for USU. We'd love to hear your sustainable housing program or experience, and you can join us at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Emily Neathouse, I'm curious, uh, what's what's been the result since you've started Community Rebuilds? The, the goals were affordable housing, and then that morphed into uh, shifting construction to have a lighter impact on the environment. Have you, have you had a lot of people uh, meeting those two goals? What's What's been the response? Um, well, um, uh, it's, it, it's pretty, it's pretty humbling. Um, so at the end of this year, uh, we will have built 15 homes as an organization in three different communities in Moab, in Gunnison County, Colorado, um, and also on the Hopi Reservation in Arizona, um, all because people see this model as a really unique way um, to f- build affordable housing, but also um, to provide affordable education um, to individuals and communities about um, uh, straw bale construction. And so um, we, the way that we're able to build an affordable home is by running an affordable education program. So we recruit students and partner them with our participating families. Each family gets an average of eight students um, recruited for them to participate um, foundation to finish the entire build, those students that come to our program um, can come with empty pockets. We provide housing and we provide $100 a month food stipend plus bulk food for them to eat. Um, So a safe place to live, food on the plate, um, and an education in exchange for their labor and participation building this affordable home. So um, really what we have developed is this really unique exchange program. Um, building affordable housing, providing affordable education, and putting on the um, in the grounds and on the market um, a not tiny home, but a small home. Um, interior square footage is 950 square feet. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're really, as much as we say we're changing the paradigm of housing, um, beyond straw bale, 
um, we're really putting um, a small home back on the market, which is, you know, a circle back to what was affordable for all of us and, you know, the um, the idea of the American dream of home ownership um, gets a little more um, available when uh, when you're you're not buying such a big home. And the smaller uh, smaller homes are. Uh, it does seem like it's uh, bigger homes get constructed and and uh, but people do want them. You know, it's it's kind of the living that American dream. So we're adjusting that, I guess, right? A smaller home that's more affordable. Well, I think that, you know, right now we're reshaping what the new American dream really is because we've got, um, uh, and I am not, I am not detached from this paradigm, um, uh, people graduating from college with student loans, looking at housing costs and saying, there's no way that I could A, qualify for a loan to buy this kind of a home, um, or B, ever think that I would pay off a home in my lifetime. And so, um, uh, and, and then also, you know, we're, we're also faced with this idea of, like, what it means to be a consumer. Um, a consumer not only of, um, you know, goods like, you know, cars and, and clothing, but also a consumer of energy. Um, and it's real in Moab how we're looking at, um, resource extraction as a as a as a big industry in Moab, um, and um, and then what that means to us as consumers. Um, so it's really exciting. Through just um, the construction of homes, we're able to have these um, pretty significant conversations about you know consuming um, natural resources. Um, we began um, the the early community rebuilt homes that we built had natural gas in them. Um, and we have moved to now building all electrical homes um, and um, installing solar panels to offset that cost of energy. So we are building very closely, if not right on, um, the net zero home, uh, uh, um, you know, building net zero homes, which is totally exciting. And I think that is where we're going um, as as we, you know, between me and Roz and Dan and all of us that are part of this bigger cohort that are recognizing um, the American dream is a new dream. We're putting that dream on the shelf for others to look at and criticize and compliment and, and get excited about. And, and as a result, um, other communities are seeing what we're building and they're saying, we want, we want that kind of a home too. And other people within our community as well, which is so exciting that Ecologic is a, is a, is a contractor in Moab that's willing to build these, um, the, the new American dream for families. Just joined us. We're talking about sustainable housing, uh, net zero housing, uh, the, how this fits into uh, sustainable living. And we're talking with Rosalind Brain, a USU Sustainable Communities Extension Specialist, Emily Niehaus, founder and executive director of Community Rebuilds, and uh, Dan McCann, who's with Ecologic uh, in, uh, in Moab. Let me turn next to Rosalind Brain. What if you could expand on what Emily was talking about there? Uh, how this fits into a sustainable ethos? Is this and and an adjusting? I guess the the American dream. You know, the American dream. I guess has been you know big house, a um, lot of consumption, and I imagine what people working in sustainability are doing is to try to change that, modify that. Yeah, I would definitely say that's the case, and. 
If there's one thing I've seen Utahns excited about, it's self-sufficiency. And a great way to get there is by living a sustainable lifestyle. And so you not only have the benefits with this type of building um, where you're using less uh, materials that are, um, I guess, more detrimental to the environment, but also um, we're building a smaller home, which um, our home is 1,100 square feet. So we're not building a community rebuilds home, but like I said, Dan used to work for community rebuilds and um, takes a lot of those concepts and skills with him from that program. And um, But still, 1,100 square feet is not large compared to the standard home. My thinking is I grew up in a medium-sized mansion up in Canada, and that was... Uh, not fun when my friends would be going out on the weekend and I'd be stuck with a tours list of uh, things to clean at my house. And I feel like the bigger the house, the more you have to clean, the more you have to dust. And the more stuff people have, I just see a direct correlation between more and more and more buying and um, more and more and more misery. And I think people are realizing that where we, if we can live a more simple life, if we own less stuff and we have a smaller space that we have to maintain, then we have more time to go out and go rock climbing or go mountain biking and, and live our lives um, in a, a more fun sense instead of always being housebound um, where we're stuck cleaning and, and taking care of things around the house because it is so large. And I, I'm just seeing that as a growing movement, and that's why the tiny home movement has really taken off across the country, and and people are looking for alternatives. If, um, there's a Permaculture is the first uh, connection I had with Emily, and that's a design philosophy to um, mimic natural ecosystems, the way you live your life and design your landscape, which is a whole other topic area. But... I'm seeing people in permaculture courses, the enrollments are going up to the thousands for one one course, and there's waiting lists, et cetera, because I think across the U.S. people are rethinking the American dream, realizing that um, there might be a lie in this message we're getting on commercials and um, our TVs, our internets, where we need to consume, consume, consume. There's, If you look at your life and think of the happiest times in your life, if you close your eyes and thought, what are the moments of my life that have made me the most happy? I could almost guarantee they cost next to nothing. And um, and I think people are starting to see that. I wonder, uh, you know, I, I hear people saying, well, yeah, this can work in Moab. Uh, Moab has a, you know, certain culture. Uh, could it work in Kanab? I don't know why I'm picking on Kanab. It just uh, came to mind. Um, <laughs> is this scalable to, to other communities that uh, perhaps have, you know, different culture. Yeah, I will let um, Emily actually speak to this one because she knows of um, programs that are occurring in other areas that would probably surprise you. Okay. Emily. Well, um, I guess it's, it's kind of a, a, a question with um, two, two angles. Um, is Community Rebuild as an organization uh, scalable? Is straw bale building um, or natural building uh, scalable? And I, I think the answer is, um, is yes, and here's why. Community rebuilds began in Moab. Now we're building in Gunnison, Colorado. We're slated to build a, a three-story straw bale duplex in Crested Butte next summer um, with a student education program. Um, we're also expanding to, with a partner on the Navajo Nation. Um, so the program itself is... Uh, scalable. Um, and like with all nonprofits, you just have to find the right grant funding source to be able to do so. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, you got to be solving for a, a, a social a social need, um, which we are, affordable housing. As for straw bale, straw bale um, or natural building has already been um, a movement or a niche kind of home. So if uh, there's a straw bale registry online where you can look and see, you know, where people have registered a straw bale home. And um, there is not a state in our country that, or in the United States that doesn't have um, a, a home with natural building um, or straw bale. Um, straw bale construction actually began in Nebraska in, in the early 1900s um, because there was a lack of wood. So they were stacking straw because they didn't have wood and then putting a roof on top of it. Um, and those were the old farm homes. And so um, it kind of caught on in the Southwest um, because maybe because we just see our clay more readily. Um, And um, we've got, um, you know, quarried stone homes, indigenous homes that have been built that that are, you know, made of natural materials that are still sticking around today that we can see as a reference. But um, in Ohio, in Michigan, in Texas, and even in the Pacific Northwest, there are straw bale homes, passive solar straw bale homes that are built um, that are uh, that prove that straw bale really can be built um, in most climates. Um, uh, you know, really performing well in cold climates. Straw bale is a really great performer in cold climates. Um, the only place where it seems a little funny um, to build a straw bale home is in a climate where you don't need a lot of insulation. So the closer you are to the equator, the less insulation you really need in general. And and straw bale is a good insulative building material. And so, you know, perhaps closer you get to the equator, less appropriate, but you can still build with uh, clay and sand um, and a little bit of chopped straw thrown in the mix really gives it that strength. Um, it gives it like a, a fibrous strength. Um so I think that's the answer to that question of, of scalability. Very good. Uh, we have a question from Gary and Logan. He's wondering, uh, I'll, I'll address this to Dan. Uh, Gary and Logan's wondering how these homes could hold up in an earthquake. Um, well, they pretty much, I imagine, like, I haven't read any studies recently of um, a straw bale in the earthquake zone handling it um they are engineered um as opposed to being structured to um handle just about any anything as far as i know um they account for that in the design and the engineering of the building um right now um as far as shear goes compared to um like osb and sheikas there haven't been a whole lot of studies um to compare the plaster's strength um, and that, uh, and to see how the sheer strength of the plasters, um, hold up to earthquake forces. But, um, there are people working on that right now and doing these studies to figure out exactly how well and how strong these plasters are and how much sheer, um, they add to the house. We just and, have, um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, and, um, and I think, uh, um, Dotson Harper up in Crested Butte, um, he's an engineer, and he's been working um, specifically on this and looking at these numbers, um, and I haven't actually seen any yet. Well, if, if, 
if I can answer. Y- yes, go um, ahead. In in um, uh, New Zealand, uh, high earthquake area. Also, San Francisco, high earthquake area. Strawvale is actually being pushed as a solution for um, safety. So when an earthquake strikes, um, it's not a matter of whether or not the building is going to survive, but instead it's a matter of whether or not the inhabitants are going to safely, you know, be able to get out and, you know, be safe. And so um, Strawvale is really great. When you shake it, um, the the plasters or the the renders can um, crack. Um, There was an earthquake that happened that... um, where the the um, the straw bale home was wrapped with a, a diamond um, like chicken wire, um, and um, and the chicken wire areas of the home um, didn't perform well, but where the plaster was applied straight to the straw, um, it did a lot better. But these homes um, with the built you know built you know stacking straw like bricks, um, when they shake, they're just not going to collapse in the way that like a concrete block will break. Um, and so straw bale performs actually better um, in, in earthquake zones than conventional construction. Um, but, you know, along this, the lines of this question um, about, you know, how does straw bale perform in earthquake areas, it's really important that when we're comparing, and Ross touched on this too, that when we're talking about straw bale homes and fire and rodents and earthquakes, that we're comparing it, you know, the straw bale construction to actual conventional construction. Conventional construction, conventional homes burn. They have rodent problems. Um, they get mold. They're, uh, you know, susceptible to, um, you know, uh, hurting the inhabitants during an earthquake. Um, and so when we're comparing to, uh, you know, conventional construction, it's important for us to realize that um, building with straw bale isn't meant to solve any of these problems that are just going to happen. Um, but actually, straw bale can outperform conventional homes when compared. Here's another question coming by email. This is Brenda in Logan. It says, I'm viewing the photos presented on the Community Rebuilds website. I'm curious if the design element is negotiable. Is there a modern urban variation available when constructing out of straw and mud? I don't, I don't know if Dan wants to take that. or. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um there's, uh, I think, some basic principles that you want to follow when designing for a straw bale house, um, and that's uh, mostly your um, overhang um, and protecting uh, the walls uh, to a certain extent um, from any um, real hard sideways rains and stuff like that. Um, but and also um, right now by code you can't stack draw um, on a second story, but you can still frame up on that second story. So I would say, yes, I mean, you can design pretty much anything, um, any urban style house in a straw bale. I'm wondering, Dan, uh, your journey from conventional contractor to, uh, you know, working with eco-builds, doing natural building, eco-building. Mm-hmm. What, uh, I don't know, did you set out to do that as a goal? What, how'd that happen? Um, well, I've been uh, always fascinated with natural building. Um, I've seen, um, growing up in Montana, I had seen a handful of houses uh, nearby me um, be built um, from adobe brick and also um, straw bale. And um, 
and load-bearing style bale actually as well. Um, and I really love the aesthetic and the way they looked and felt when being inside of them. And so um, I was very curious um, how they did this. And um, it didn't really happen until I was actually in Moab and sat in uh, with a meeting with Roz and Emily. And uh, I kind of found out what Emily was doing. And uh, she said, come on down and do the internship with me. And... Uh, and see what, you know, where your path takes you from there. So um, it was awesome. I uh, came down, did the internship. Um, my perspective on building was entirely changed. And uh, and here I am. <laughs> we are just about out of time. I just want to get a contact point. Uh, first, Emily Niehaus, how, how do people get hold of information on Community Rebuilds? Well, you can go to our website, uh, communityrebuilds.org. Um, you can also go to our Facebook page. So to, for the woman in Logan, if you go to our Facebook page, you can actually see um, uh, pictures from just, you know, this week of students doing work and homes under construction and finished homes. We've got a great video posted about um, uh, uh, the issue of uh, women in construction. So our website, um, our Facebook page, and then you can also call us, 435 435- Two six zero zero five zero one for more information. Dan, uh, Ecologic, I know you have a Facebook page. Uh, yep, there's a Facebook page. Um, there isn't a developed website yet, um, so I'd say Facebook is the best place to get right. a hold of anybody. Look for Ecologic on, on Facebook. And uh, Rosalind Brain, uh, where, where to go with the Sustainable Communities Extension? a website with Utah State University. It's extensionsustainability.usu.edu. And uh, Rosalind Brain is assistant professor with uh, College of Natural Resources at USU. She's Sustainable Communities Extension Specialist with USU. Uh, Emily Niehaus is founder and executive director of Community Rebuilds, and Dan McCann works for Ecologic, uh, all these good folks in uh, Moab. Uh, thanks to everyone. Appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. And we're going to take a break. When we come back, we will check back in uh, with uh, Macy Miller. She lives in a tiny house, 196 square feet. And we'll get an update. More following the break. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. This year, Misty Copeland was the first African-American to be named principal dancer for the American Ballet Theater. A new documentary tracks her rise to the top of the ballet world, and I'll speak with the film's director, Nelson George. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us Thursday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments. A Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. What makes people feel good about their economy? Opportunity is one thing. We have many people that we brought in that have started in operations, and through the, you know, those years of operations, those people have actually got to the point where we have many of them in senior positions. I'm Kai Rizdal, more from Alabama, and our series My Economy next time on Marketplace from APM. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio.
Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're continuing our series on housing. We have talked about uh, people living off the grid. We did a uh, we did the program course today on uh, straw bale housing and uh, green and natural housing. Uh, about a year ago, we checked in with uh, people uh, constructing and living in tiny houses, and we wanted to check back in with uh, Macy Miller. Uh, I'm reading from her uh, blog, uh, minimotives.com. She says, my name is Macy. I started uh, building my 196-square-foot tiny house, our home, in December of 2011. In the process, I met a boy, James. 18 months after starting my house, we moved in and started our family, which includes our daughter, Hazel, and our Great Dane, Denver. And uh, so we wanted to check back in and see how things are going. Uh, uh, Macy Biller, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Hey, thanks for having me. So a, a great story, and there's a great picture of you and your family there. Um, but <laughs> we talked about this before. You got you, you, your husband, your daughter, and the Great Dane all living in 196 uh, square feet. But I, I guess I it works. Need to update that we have a son. He he's a really adult, so, <laughs> so two <laughs> children. Our, our last child. Yeah, we wanted two kids. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah, now we're completed. Now you're completed. So 196 square feet. It, it, it actually works. Oh yeah. Um, we actually, so I designed it so that I could build on. I knew that, you know, the family time might overlap with the, uh, single time or with the time I was in the tiny house. Um, so I had this porch and I built it so that I could in the future enclose it and make it a little nursery for the kiddos. Um, so we've actually done that. We didn't end up opting to do that with our first kid because we didn't really need it. But now it's important we have two separate nap areas. So Yeah, that's important, uh, we, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we did enclose it with a, the the birth of our second son. So, and I'm, I'm looking at the pictures here. You have before and after, uh, and you have enclosed that, that porch area. Uh, what's the square footage now? 232. Two, wow. Well, it's, it's a mansion. The, you know, 36-square-foot addition. Right. Uh, and and it's as as a lot of tiny houses are, it's on wheels, but that's not necessarily so it can move. What's what's the idea there? Yeah, exactly. So wheels are work around to code issues. A lot of places have ma- uh, minimum square foot sizes for foundation buildings, and a lot of times it's six hundred plus square feet. So that's not, you know, I, I didn't want to build that big. So this was an option that worked for us. Um, but yeah, so most of them are not for moving it's just the same exact construction as a, a typical house just on wheels for the the legal work around if you will it and puts them into an rv classification rather than a, a house classification a lot of municipalities don't know what to do with these right so, so there's sometimes some some code issues yeah so. there's you know there's there's places all across the country that are looking at legalizing them and they're all taking kind of different approaches either as accessory dwelling units um, or, you know, allowing, uh, there's quite a few places that are allowing smaller square footage sizes, so long as you can still meet building codes, which you can with 200 square feet. Um, but they're, they're kind of relaxing that, that minimum square foot size. That's one approach. The ADUs is another one, allowing them as accessory to a, a, a permanent structure. Um, and then some, some people are building communities that they're, you know, using the RV classification to build a, a tiny house community and, you know, only letting tiny houses in, if you will, mm. um, but making it kind of a more permanent situation for those uh, tiny houses rather than just more of the come-and-go nature of an uh, RV park. So there's a lot of different approaches that are being taken, but they're being looked at 
and analyzed all across the country right now, which is kind of exciting. Now, uh, remind us why you wanted to go for a, for a tiny house. Well, for me, initially, I was, you know, a single girl. I, I have a construction background. I went to school for architectural design, and I needed an actual construction project. So really, this was born out of, an, you know, just getting some hands-on experience. Um, and kind of wanted to use it to test different sustainable technologies, if you will, like composting toilets. I had radiant floor heat and stuff like that so that I could get some real-life experience with it so that I could talk to my clients with, you know, an educated, you know, background. Um, and then it, it was kind of a challenge to me. I thought it would be kind of difficult, and I was like, yeah, let's let's push how, how far you can comfortably live, um, what size space you can comfortably live in. And it turned out not being difficult at all. So, you know, here I am four years later still in the tiny house. I had the goal of two years, but um, well past that at this point. Did, did you think, uh, so two years, did you think it was going to be difficult living in a, in a tiny house? Absol- absolutely. <laughs> I, I totally went into it that it was a challenge and I was going to do it. I'm going to take one year's worth of rent payments, you know, and build this tiny house and then live in it for two years so it could at least pay itself back. Um, and, and so that way it was a no-loss situation. But I definitely looked at it that, that as a challenging situation. Um, but it's it's been the easiest transition. I Honestly, I, I don't know anything that I miss. Uh, so it's been a good experience. You've, you've been able to Absolutely. live comfortably. In, in a, Absolutely. That's... It took a... You know, some secondary benefits. Within eight months, I was completely debt-free, which is unusual for somebody with a master's degree and, you know, just right out of school. Um, but it, it allowed me to save, you know, a lot of money and just put that towards my debt, and now I'm completely debt-free. So, I'm, secondary I'm, benefit. Yeah, that's, it is. And including with your husband, two kids, and a Great Dane, you're, you're, I keep coming back to that because I think... People will remark on that. It certainly seems remarkable to me that you all can live together in that space. It's it's definitely something that's remarked on quite a bit. Uh, you know, it comes down to design. Uh, not every tiny house is equal. Um, it's not really a one-size-fits-all situation. It's really kind of got to be designed for the occupants. And uh, so when I designed it, it was just me, and I designed it for two adults, so there was a lot of, you know, ambiguous space that, you know, this imaginary second adult would use so I built in more storage and everything ended up meeting James and he kind of lives sort of like I do we're pretty minimalist people and so we we have excess of storage in the space even which came in handy when we had kids um but no it's it's got to be designed for the occupants it can't you know be just a cave that you go to it's got to be comfortable it's got to be something you're proud of and it's got to be something that works for you and the way you live your life so design is really kind of more critical in a smaller space. You can't just add square footage necessarily to, to make up the what-if situations, you know. Uh, there, you have a, a post on your on your blog, again, it's minimotives.com. We're talking with Macy Miller. Uh, what I wish others knew about going tiny. This one uh, caught my eye. I'll just read this and have you react. Tiny houses are just a thing, you write. There seems to be a lot of folks interested in tiny houses who are tied up in the idea of minimalism, not letting things own you. But yeah, they define themselves as tiny house people. When it comes down to a tiny house, it's just another thing. It isn't something to define yourself over. Yeah, it's you know, it's, your dwelling unit is 
it's just a tool to enable the life that you want to live. And I think we've kind of got away from that. Um, and, and we get caught up with, you know, we've got to have the next coolest thing, keeping up with the Joneses, you know. And um, just, I, I think we define ourselves in a lot of ways um, by the stuff we own. And it's kind of nice to be free of that. And it's hard because I definitely get, you know, when I'm introduced to people, it's like, oh, yeah, that tiny house girl, you know. It, it's definitely become how I'm defined. But it really is just a tool to enable the lifestyle you want to live, whatever your dwelling unit is, you know. Just to have about a minute left, I wonder um, where people can go to get information if someone's interested in building a tiny house. Um, Yeah, there's all kinds of information out there. Actually, the best resource I can think of off the top of my head, I'm sorry, it's self-serving, but I run a tiny house community and we have 24,000 people and I, I make it so that it's all about sharing information, not advertising and marketing. So the point behind that is that you can get all of your questions answered by folks that are, are taking this path. And there's a lot of people living in tiny houses, researching tiny houses, and just heard of it yesterday sort of stuff. Um, and in there, you know, there's access to lots of different resources, um, websites galore. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, tiny house people on Facebook uh, it's a great resource. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to fit this email in. This is Jess in Cache Valley. Uh, first of all, your guest sounds so cool. Second of all, can you ask her to repeat the total amount she spent on her home and on property? Didn't catch if she already mentioned it. Yeah, the total amount. So the, the first wife spent $11,416, and I spent about $2,500 on the addition last year. Okay. Macy Miller lives in her uh, tiny house now up to uh, 230 square feet. 232. 232. Uh, yeah, it, it's... Uh, it's important, it's, man, those extra two feet. Those extra two feet, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and uh, with her husband, uh, two kids now, and, and the Great Dane, uh, sounds like she's having a good a good life there in Boise, Idaho. Uh, Mason Miller, thank you so much for, for coming back on thank the program. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts. Presenting the New York City-based Aquila Theater, showcasing the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Saturday, November 7th at 7.30 p.m. in the Ellen Eccles Theater. Information at cashearts.org or 435-752-0026. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. The 1940 assassination in Mexico City of Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky has an odd Utah connection in Joseph Hansen, whose journey took him from a childhood in Richfield, Utah, to the deathbed of one of the most important leaders of the 20th century. Learn more after this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. When an assassin dug his axe into the skull of Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky, the man who rushed to Trotsky's aid was his driver and secretary, Joseph Hansen. Leon Trotsky was a leader of Russia's 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, which put into place the world's first communist government. But Trotsky was usurped by his arch-rival Joseph Stalin, who deported Trotsky and his wife Natalia from the Soviet Union and planted assassins on their trail. The couple's exile brought them to Mexico in 1937. Still hunted by Stalin, they holed up with their most trusted comrades in a walled compound in Mexico City. Trotsky found respite from his worries by touring the countryside in search of rare cacti. His driver, Joseph Hansen, 
was chosen for his experience driving rural roads, the rural roads of his Utah home. The afternoon of August 20, 1940 seemed routine. Natalia was making tea, Hansen was tinkering with the alarm system, and Trotsky was in his study with a visitor. Hansen later recalled that a fearful cry rent the afternoon calm, a cry prolonged and agonized, half scream, half sob. Hansen raced to the study and grabbed Trotsky as he collapsed, while guards subdued the visitor, an assassin sent by Stalin. Hansen stayed with Trotsky and took down his last words. So how did a boy from Richfield, Utah, become the right-hand man of a Russian revolutionary? Hansen was part of a large working-class family of Norwegian immigrants who had converted to Mormonism in search of a better life. Growing up, Hansen heard about the Russian Revolution and how it would benefit workers. By the time he graduated from the LDS Academy, he was a socialist and became Trotskyist at the University of Utah. But it was Hansen's secretarial skills, honed as co-editor of the used literary magazine, and his driving skills, honed on the bumpy roads between Richfield and Salt Lake, that earned him a place at Trotsky's side. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Artist de Mexico in Utah. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Science at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. The time now is 10 o'clock.